Hey, thank you so much for listening. I've got a couple quick corrections before the show begins. First of all, I said that when Soleimani landed on the uh, Iraq airstrip that he was there to talk peace with the U.S. Um, that news was fresh when I heard it, and um, it's been clarified since then that he was planning to talk peace with the Saudis. So just wanted to make that minor correction there. And then when I was talking about the elections, I meant to say gerrymandering, but instead what I said was jerry-rigging. And um, I've got no good excuse for that one other than uh, it was late, it was past my bedtime, and apparently I was just getting a little bit stupid. So just wanted to correct those things before we get into the show. Thank you so much for listening. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Make America Garrett Again podcast, your cure for the mainstream media. This show is your safe space to talk about persuasion, politics, and the effect they have on your life and liberty. I'm so glad to have you here for another episode. Uh, We just keep on chugging along. What episode is this? Is this 18 now I think that we're on? I guess I better check on that before I title this episode and give it a number. So it's been an absolutely wild couple of days in the news as uh, Donald Trump and the United States have been going at it with Iran and things really heated up when the United States ordered a drone strike that killed their top general, uh, Qasem Soleimani. And ever since then, of course, there have been talks of war with Iran and there have been talks of, you know, who's doing the right thing here. So, of course, on one side, you've got conservatives cheering on Trump and talking about what a strong leader he is and just praising him for showing the rest of the world that we are not going to tolerate anything like this. And if you attack any of our embassies, if you attack uh, any contractors that are working for us in a foreign land, um, th- there will be consequences and that we will respond with, with brute force. And, uh, of course, you've got people who, who don't like Trump or who don't like the moves that he made. And they are upset that either, you know, he didn't go into this uh, without giving Congress enough warning or that, you know, he responded with too much force and that this is going to cause a, an unnecessary hot war. Uh, you have celebrities uh, like Rose McGowan personally apologizing to Iran uh, for the things that we've done, that, that we can't help it, that our president is a madman. And um, ironically enough, Michael Moore uh, recorded his apology and uh, made a big deal that he had posted it in his podcast and uh, you know sent it out and, and tagged several uh, Iranian officials and that kind of thing. And there's a, there's a guy on Twitter who is a pretty big Muslim personality, and uh, his, the name of there is Imam of Peace. And he responded to Michael Moore and he said, you know, how stupid are you? You put music at the beginning of your podcast and and we're not allowed to listen to music with instruments in it. So even there, uh, you just see the the kind of hilarity in this. And and a lot of it has been kind of funny because you immediately have everybody jumping to talk about what they think about it. And uh, the, the truth is, no matter what you think about it, whether it was right or wrong or too much or not enough, any of those things, the most important thing that we can do is to step back and admit that this is a very complicated issue, that there are a lot of things at play here, and we forget that, especially in 
this kind of American way of, of binary thinking, where it's always got to be the Republicans against the Democrats, the good guys against the bad guys, America against whoever's anti-America. You know, you're either for us or you're against us, and there's nothing in between. And the truth is, it's just not that easy. There's a lot going on here, and that can be confusing. And uh, I saw uh, there's a post floating around on Facebook. Um, it's probably on Twitter, too. Said something to the effect of, I can't wait to get on Facebook and hear what somebody I went to high school thinks about foreign policy. And um, it kind of made me laugh a little bit. You know, that's kind of funny that uh, it's, it's true. You know, everybody's got an opinion and everybody's absolutely positive that they've got it right and that, you know, anyone else is an idiot. Um, it kind of makes sense. You know, I, I, like I said, I get, I get the joke. You know, a lot of these people... I don't know about you, but some of the people I'm Facebook friends with, I don't know how they tie their shoes in the morning, right? I, I don't know how they're raising children or any of this stuff because some of them just aren't that bright. But they do know the right thing to do when it comes to dealing with Iran. But that kind of got me thinking a little bit, you know? I, of course, you don't want to hear uh, what some guy you went to high school with thinks about foreign policy, unless you're listening to this podcast and you went to high school with me, of course, then... That's why you're here. But um, I thought, who might be a better source to get our information from when it comes to the question of, is it right to go to war with a hostile foreign power? And so the first people that came to mind, I thought, was the corporate media. And you know, maybe we should ask the mainstream media what we should do about this. But the mainstream media is often sponsored by weapons manufacturers, and they stand to gain millions of clicks and views and follows and 24-7 news coverage during a hot war. And everybody's going to want to tune in as often as possible to see what's going on with this war. And that means big money for the corporate media. Can we trust them? Or, you know, maybe we should get our information from the defense industry, who's Funding and their very existence is based on the threat of foreign dragons that need slain. Maybe we could talk to the intelligence community who spies on the American people every day and they collect your phone records and they collect your emails. You know, they're, they're watching what you do online. And all of those things have been authorized and paid for by things like the Patriot Act because somewhere out there, you know, maybe there's a guy in a cave wearing a turban who hates America and could be a threat as a terrorist. So, so they need their power to spy on you. And, and they need that power and that fear for us to continue authorizing them to do that. But maybe we can trust them. Maybe we can listen to them. Or perhaps we go to the Trump administration, go straight to the White House, who Maybe they happen to be staring down the, the barrel of an economic disaster and, and we have these bond bubbles and all of these other things that could burst at any minute and absolutely ruin the economy. And uh, it's also re-election season, so he's got that to worry about. And, you know, we wouldn't want to change leaders in the middle of a hot war. So, you know, a lot of this could be important to his election as well. But maybe we can trust what they have to say about that. And I just find it odd when I go through kind of that list of, of people who are telling us that all of them pretty much hold the same position on this. I'm sure it's purely a coincidence that they're the ones who stand to gain the most 
if tensions rise and if war breaks out, they're the ones who gain the most. So maybe you shouldn't listen to some friend from high school, some random person on Facebook about what to do about Iran, but the problem is that there's so much bad information out there where things get outright twisted or lied about or, or just ignored. And I tried to do as much research as I could so that I can come here and be some kind of authority on this and, and bring you good information and things that are going to be helpful as we look at this. But when I pull up things from the corporate media, often the stories are, are littered with so many names and so many different sects and so many foreign, hard-to-read Arab words that it kind of makes you just want to shrug your shoulders and walk away from it. And I think that that's one of the biggest tools that they're using is they're making sure that there's a clear line here to let you know that they're elite and you should just take their word for it. And you don't need to have an opinion on it. They'll tell you what to think. But there's different, just too many people here and too many tribes and too many different groups at play and uh, you just wouldn't understand it. And it's just not, not that important. You just need to understand that if we say it's time to go to war, we're going to go to war. And if we say that this one bad guy did this bad thing and that we need to retaliate, then you just need to trust us for it. Because, you know, if not, well, you, you hate the troops. You hate America, right? That's one of the things I've been seeing on Facebook for the past several days is, why are Democrats siding with terrorists and not America? Well, because it's complicated. So this podcast is not meant to be an exhaustive history or a full picture of everything that's happening in the Middle East. That would be impossible. That would take hours upon hours, several episodes spanning several hours to do that. And if that's something we want to look at, if, if we would like to do a full history on the United States and their relations with Iran in particular or you know with several of these countries, we can do that. Feel free to hit me up, Twitter, Facebook, uh, email. You know the handles to use to do that. But for this episode, I am intentionally trying to keep it as short and as simple as possible. And that means that there are some things that I'm going to leave out. I'm not going to be able to cover every part of this, but I just want to try to combat a lot of those bad narratives and a lot of those bad takes that are floating around Facebook. And hopefully we'll be able to understand this a little bit better so that we can honestly say that the people on the left and the people on the right are both getting a lot of this wrong. And I don't know that you're going to be able to convince these people otherwise. I'm reading a book this week about how to write better copy. And one of the things it talks about is confirmation bias. And we've talked about confirmation bias on this show before. And of course, it makes us feel good to see things that we agree with. And those things mean more to us. And if we see something we don't agree with, we kind of feel sort of repulsed at that. And it just doesn't stick, regardless of whether or not it's a fact. And one of the things I learned this week was that there is actual dopamine involved. That when you see something that you agree with, your brain actually releases a little bit of dopamine and that keeps you even more coming back to that confirmation bias of whatever it is. So I don't expect you to have a whole lot of luck talking to these people. 
I don't expect you to be able to change their minds. Part of it is just because a lot of them want to live in that binary world. You know, my side is good, the other side is bad. My flag is good, the other flag is bad. But hopefully here, at least I can give you a better understanding, a better framing of where we are and how we got here. And that you'll be able to look at these things with a little bit more clarity. So, as I mentioned before, in the Yemen episode, and, and some of this stuff uh, does kind of carry over from the Yemen episode. If you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to it. It was an excellent episode, one of our most downloaded, and I'd like to do plenty more like it. Maybe we'll do one on Iran like this. But, as I said in that episode, I'll say it again. When we have these conversations about things like foreign policy, you need to remember a couple of things. First of all, even though our presidents change, our foreign policy often does not change. So just because I say something bad about Obama or something bad about Bush or something bad about Trump doesn't mean that that is an endorsement of the opposite party. That doesn't mean that if you had just voted Republican instead of voting Obama into office, that none of these things would have happened. That's not what I'm trying to convey at all. You know, instead, it seems that no matter who is in office, we seem to do the same things. Tom Woods has what we jokingly call the, the Tom Woods Law, which says that no matter who you vote for, you always get John McCain. And that seems to be the case. So don't get too hung up on who was president, who made these decisions, whatever. Just realize that this is a continuing thing throughout U.S. history. The other thing is... There are not black hats and white hats when it comes to this. There are not good guys and bad guys. You know, this is not like a basketball game where you've got two different teams wearing two different colored jerseys and one team is pushing the ball up the court in one direction and the other team is pushing the ball down the court in the other direction. And at any given time, you can see who's on what team and you can see them moving back and forth. And it's, it's often clear to see who's on the same team and who is moving the ball most effectively. Instead, when it comes to foreign relations, especially in the Middle East, it's not a basketball game. It's more like a NASCAR race. You've got dozens and dozens of groups, um, many of them small groups, and they're all occupying the same space, and they're all jockeying for position, and they all want to make sure that they are watching out for their own self-interest. And they want to put themselves in the best possible position for them to win and for them to do the things that they want to do. And you may temporarily see certain alliances. You may see some people work together for a certain amount of time. And then at the same time, when the situation changes, you may see people completely flip sides and somebody that they were completely opposed to earlier, uh, now they're fighting alongside them. And someone that they were allied with earlier, now they're enemies or now they, they just don't care about the other side. And so... And we need to remember that as we talk about these things because, especially in the Middle East, it's not so important what country you come from, but instead it matters more uh, a lot of times what religious group you belong to or, or what type of a Muslim you are and how you worship that way. And those kind of things have an effect on what kind of government you want, on who you consider yourself to be allied with. And oftentimes with that, as I said in the Yemen episode, um, a lot of times with that comes a lot of racism. And the most basic division there is you have Sunni Muslims and Shiite Muslims. And uh, if you were to say have a Sunni in power, 
and they, the, the Sunnis are running the government, they may be very oppressive toward the Shiite Muslims, and they may treat them very poorly, and they may be very you know, second-class citizens, and that may cause a lot of resentment. And eventually, um, you say the, the Shiites rise up and there's a revolution and they take over the government. And now it's time for them to, to put the Sunnis down and to get their revenge for all of the things that the Sunnis did to them while they were in power. But as this happens over time, eventually maybe the Sunnis rise back up and they take the government back. And so now they're extra mad because of all of the things that the Shiites did while they were in power. And so you constantly have this building and building and building. And oftentimes it's very difficult to figure out, maybe even impossible to even know who wronged who first. Who is at fault for this? You just don't know. And you have groups of people constantly pointing back, well, they hit me first. Well, they hit me before that. Well, he hit me before that. Well, they did this. And you just get lost in all of this. And the only thing that you're left with is groups of people that hate each other. So just a, a, a brief history of what's going on in Iraq, what's going on with Iran, and, and how we got to that point. So when it comes to Iran, a biggest part of our relationship with them started back in the 50s. So in 1951, somebody was elected, I think it was prime minister, I can't remember his name, I can't remember the name of the title, but this guy was uh, kind of a left-wing type leader, and what he did was he nationalized the petroleum industry in the country of Iran. So the country was going to decide who to sell oil to. The country was going to keep the profits and spread it around to their people and use it on, I don't know what they were going to use it on. I'm assuming some sort of social welfare programs, which when we talk about our principles on the show, we have peace, property rights, and free markets. Socializing the oil industry or any industry within your country is not a free market. We would say that that's probably not the best way to do things, but at the same time, it's your country, your borders, your lands. Um, if, if you want to make that choice and decide to do things that way, then that's absolutely your prerogative. Well, maybe not. In 1951 is when this guy took power. 1953, the CIA, along with Great Britain's intelligence agencies too, they formed a coup d'etat in Iran. And they overthrew the prime minister because we wanted someone in power who was going to be much more friendly toward us with their oil. And we wanted to make sure that we were getting good deals on the oil and not just the people of Iran getting those deals on their oil. And we wanted to make sure that they were sharing with us and that we were getting a lot of those things. So this was the first time uh, that the CIA ever uh, was involved in overthrowing a government um, as far as we know. But you'll see this happen again and again and again, especially when it comes to governments that aren't friendly toward us with their economic policies. And even more recently, you've seen this happen. They tried to overthrow Venezuela because Venezuela did the same thing. They, they nationalized their oil, and that didn't give us the, the kind of deal on it that we want. In Bolivia, the same thing is happening right now because of, uh, I believe their export is lithium. It's something used to make batteries. And it's kind of the same thing, that we want to make sure that someone is in there that is going to be giving us the best deals and is going to be most friendly toward America. And then in Iran, again, oil is a big deal. The transport of oil is also a big deal. So uh, we put in our own dictator that was more friendly toward us, and we helped kind of prop him up. And things cruised right along there until 1979, when they had another revolution 
and um, somebody else took over the government. And so from that point forward, things were a little bit hostile between Iran and America. And of course, things have boiled up and simmered down repeatedly since then, but because there's already those tensions between the U.S. and Iran, and because Iran does not get along with Israel, and they are also a Shiite government, so they don't get along with the Sunni Saudi Arabians that we are have such close ties to. There are a lot of reasons why we seem to have trouble getting along with them. And even now, Iran is uh, one of the prime places for oil pipelines and I believe water pipelines as well. And, and we could get oil much cheaper if we were able to have a regime there that is more friendly to us. But they're not. And when you don't get along with someone, a lot of times you don't want to do business as much or you, you know, are maybe going to charge them extra because... You, you don't like dealing with them or whatever. You're not going to give them a special deal if you're not friends, right? And so that's one of the other reasons for tensions there is because we would love to put pipelines through Iran to make it easier for us to get our oil, and that's just not happening at this point. And they are also right next to Iraq, which we've also had ups and downs with over the past several decades. So so we were friendly with Iraq during the early 80s, and we helped arm them. We helped arm Saddam Hussein and give him a lot of the support that he needed because they were fighting the Soviets in, um, I can't remember if it was Iran or Afghanistan. I think it was Afghanistan, but either way, they were fighting the Soviets, so we wanted to make sure that we armed them because, of course, we don't want the communists to, to gain any more countries or to gain any more land in the Middle East, especially there because there's oil and all that, but we don't want the commies taking anything because any growth of theirs was a, was a threat to us, so we felt. So, we arm Saddam, he helps us out, um, he's a pretty brutal dictator, but we're friendly and he's fighting the Russians, so we're happy. And uh, eventually, toward the end of the 80s, uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, I think he was trying to settle some war debts or something like that, moved into Kuwait and wanted to take Kuwait's oil. And uh, that was just a little bit too much for us, so we went in and we fought them off and we pushed them back and we quickly won a uh, Gulf Storm or uh, Iraq War One, as Scott Horton would call it. But uh, we didn't depose him from the throne. You know, we left him in power and he was able to do that, but things weren't quite uh, as friendly as they had been before. So uh, you move through the 90s, Bill Clinton had a little bit of dealings with the Middle East. And so we're arming certain terror groups and, and, and you know, trying to pick the winners in some of these battles over in the Middle East, make sure that, you know, everyone is... Um, the, as favorable to us as, as we would like them to be. And eventually that boils over and that blows up and turns into the September 11th attacks. And so members of Al-Qaeda uh, come over here, they kill 3,000 of our people, probably, what, the worst attack on American soil that we've ever had, definitely in our lifetimes, maybe ever, and that's a problem. And so now George Bush is going into Afghanistan to track down Al-Qaeda, and, and, you know, we have to, to kill them, and avenge ourselves for what they did to us on 9-11. Not too long after that, um, the U.S. comes up with a list of several countries that they would like to take over and install favorable governments in, uh, in the Middle East. And one of those is Iraq. So George W. Bush is going to go in and do what his father, George H.W. Bush, didn't, which was to go into Iraq and to remove Saddam Hussein. So of course, they tell us that Saddam Hussein is a madman and he's a crazed dictator and 
that he has weapons of mass destruction. And, uh, you know, we, whether it was a, a nuclear bomb or, you know, some sort of other giant bombs or whatever it was, though, that they were a massive threat to us and to everyone around them. And we had to make sure that we went in there and that we took those away. Now, of course, they said that they didn't have them, but we knew that they were there and we were promised that they were there. So we go in, we remove Saddam Hussein. We also want to give their people democracy and want to give them uh, the, the freedoms that we have. And so we go in there and we find out after a few years that there are no weapons of mass destruction. And uh, as we move on a little bit more, we find out that the weapons of mass destruction thing was kind of a lie all along. And then our intelligence always knew that they probably didn't have any, but that was still the reason that we went to war with them and the reason that we wanted to remove him from power. So we install a new Shiite-led government in Iraq. And the Shiites leading this government are very friendly with the Shiite government of Iran. And Iran is very helpful along with this. Um, they're helping give support. They you know, want to help give Iraq a, a solid government. And of course, both of them being Shiite, they're, they're happy to be working together and they're happy to be allies. Well, eventually when it comes time to start setting up elections and start setting up to vote, the uh, Iran Iranians and America have a big disagreement about the way that voting is going to work. And Iran is saying, you need to have one person, one vote. That's how this democracy needs to work, that it's going to be a pure democracy. And what the U.S. was wanting to do and what they were wanting to install in the Iraqi government was some kind of system where there were like 15 councils and, and those councils would represent people in their areas. And honestly, I don't know the details of this. I don't know if this was a means of kind of jerry-rigging and, you know, giving the U.S. the, the power that they wanted. Uh, it could have perhaps been an electoral college type thing, which was able to protect uh, some of the minorities or some of the people in rural areas that lived away from the cities. I don't know what the reasoning was behind this, but at that point, Iran insisted that it was a one-person, one-vote democracy, and the U.S. was really insisting that it was this this kind of council system that they were setting up. And so at that point, they lost the, the support of Iran, and the Shiite Iraqis who are, are forming this government and, and taking control of the government are feeling a little bit more friendly toward Iran than they are toward the U.S. And I think we can kind of understand that because Again, they're neighbors, they live in the same area, they have similar cultures, they're both Shiite Muslims, you know, and the, and the U.S. is a country that's all the way on the other side of the world, kind of imposing their will around the Middle East. So naturally, the Iraqis are a little bit more friendly toward the Iranians, and at that point, you know, George Bush and America kind of realize that they've made a mistake. And so as those things move on, there is talk about whether or not Iran is trying to develop nuclear weapons. And, and that kind of talk has been going on since the 80s. And there was uh, a long time that uh, Israel or the U.S. would make claims, you know, that they're five years away from having a nuclear weapon. And then a little bit later, it would be they're, they're five years away. And it was uh, 1980 or 1984 when it started. Um, you know, and now they're only two years away. And, and it's been moving on onward and onward and onward, and as you learned in the Yemen episode, they're not making nuclear weapons. They're, they're using nuclear energy, and they're developing it for those purposes, but 
we would know if they were trying to develop a nuclear weapon, and they just haven't. And it's it kind of reminded me of the the climate change thing coming from the left, where you know in the eighties we were we were ten years away from disaster, and then we were you know disaster was sure in two thousand, and then Al Gore promised us that the ice caps were going to melt by twenty fourteen, and then they didn't, and now we have a, another year and a half or, or twelve years or whatever it is. It's just one of those those excuses that we have to act now and we have to stop this thing now, but it never comes to fruition. So. We begin to, um, you know, kind of quarrel with Iran. Meanwhile, we've got uh, we've we've chased Al Qaeda all over the place, and um, then there have been times where, uh, where in Yemen, suddenly uh, we are siding with Al Qaeda and we're fighting alongside Al Qaeda because we want to fight other Shiites who don't serve the interests of Sunni Saudi Arabia. And we go into Syria, and that was um, one of Obama's wars, was we're fighting alongside al-Qaeda in Syria because we want to push out their leader, Assad, because he's friendly toward Russia. And again, we're trying to push the Russians out of there. So we're empowering al-Qaeda there, and eventually what happens is they turn into ISIS. And so when Donald Trump said during his presidential campaign that Barack Obama created ISIS, he's not really wrong. So what we did was we armed sectors of Al-Qaeda and we made them more and more powerful. And instead of them going after the uh, quote-unquote bad governments that we wanted to get rid of and overthrowing them, they decided that they wanted to go into things for their own. There was plenty of land back in Iraq that they could go into and that they could take over those areas and that those areas could be their own and that could be their Islamic state that they're in charge of. And so it really did backfire on us. And like I mentioned earlier in the episode, not necessarily blaming Obama for this, um, but this is the way um, that our foreign policy works so often is that, that we arm rebels and then those rebels turn on us and then we're fighting against them and we arm other rebels to fight against them and eventually those rebels you know get too big or too powerful or whatever and they turn on us and, and, and that's just the way that the U.S. has done things for so long and they never seem to learn their lesson from that thing. And so as Scott Horton puts it so appropriately, Barack Obama didn't create ISIS because he was a Kenyan-born Muslim terrorist sympathizer, he created ISIS because he was just the the next version of George Bush. So we armed them up going into Syria, hoping that we're going to push Assad out of Syria so that we can put in a a dictator or a government that is friendly to us and and not so friendly to Russia. Um, And instead what they do is they turn around and they go back into Iraq and they start making settlements of their own. So you have several different militias and several different groups scattered throughout Iraq, and we have about 5,000 troops there who are also trying to remove what's left of ISIS that is scattered among a lot of these different places all across Iraq. So what's been happening over the past several months is Israel has also been launching airstrikes against several of these militias, and, and the U.S. has kind of given them permission to do so, And some of these militias are related to or friendly with Iran. And um, over the past couple of years, some of our fighting with Iran was because we wanted to make sure that we weren't acting too friendly toward them because we don't want to upset our Saudi allies who are not friendly with Iran. And we also, uh, we, you know, we had the Iran nuclear deal, which kind of helped things stay calm for a little while. And then when Donald Trump came in, he kind of set his sights on Iran and wanted to raise tensions with them, and so he cut off the nuclear deal, and we've been hitting them with more and more sanctions ever since then. And 
what one of Donald Trump's goals has been to increase tensions with Iran. And, and so that's what he's done. And he's cut off the Iran deal. We've hit them with more sanctions and things are getting worse. And then on top of that, you've got these Israelis who are hitting a lot of these militias that are friendly with Iran and they're hitting them with airstrikes. And so these militias and these governments scattered throughout are, are constantly just kind of picking at each other. And a lot of times there's not an all-out war, um, but somebody will fire th- a few rockets. And then somebody will, will set some roadside bombs. And then, you know, someone will do this. And, of course, it's just these small things that go back and forth to each other. And, and Peter Van Buren actually kind of likened it to when he plays with his dog. And he said, you know, his dog brings him this towel and she pulls on it. And he pulls back on the towel and they, and they fight back and forth a little bit. And sometimes... What happens is the dog will try to snap at the towel and she'll accidentally nip his finger and bite him. Or other times maybe, you know, he pulls on the towel a little bit too hard and he knocks her head into the table. And what they have to do is they have to stop and they have to say, wait, 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 you know, I'm sorry. I didn't mean this. Let's calm down and and reconvene here and, and not take things too far because we don't want anyone to get upset. And he said that it's kind of like that with these militias and with these bases back and forth that are, are trading these blows that everybody wants to do just enough that they can retaliate for the last bad thing that was done to them, but they don't want to do so much that they cause an actual fight or that they cause an outright war because they don't have the the means, whether it be economic or whether they don't have the bodies, to go into a full-fledged war. And that's not really what they want, but at the same time, this conflict kind of depends on them trading jabs and slowly trading blows and going back and forth with that. And, and he kind of likened it to this, this tug of war with the dog where, you know, you want to push things, but you don't want to push things too far. And if things do go too far, um, it's important to kind of step back and, and everybody to kind of take a breath so that things don't get out of control and don't get out of hand. While we're trading these blows back and forth, and the Israelis are also throwing in some airstrikes, one of the militias fired some rockets at a U.S. base on December 27th. And they ended up killing a contractor, an American contractor, and wounding two American soldiers. And we labeled this as Iranian aggression. And the truth is, we don't really know whether Iran's forces were involved in the attack or not. But one of the things that Donald Trump has been doing, and really the U.S. has been doing as a, as a policy in general, I shouldn't say Donald Trump, but um, it's, it's heightened with Trump, is that any time any Shiite hurts an American soldier, it's been tied back to Iran, and we've blamed it on Iran. And that's not quite fair, because um, while Iran is Shiite, that doesn't mean that all of the Shiites come from Iran. And, And while they might even be friendly toward one another, it doesn't mean that Iran was backing it or that Iran actually made it happen. And so, but every single time this has happened, um, we've blamed Iran for it, and um, we've we've held this against them. And, and every time something happens, we push back on them and we tell them, you know, you better stop this, or it's going to lead to war. You know, or we're going to retaliate and, and we're going to hurt more of your people. And if, a lot of times, Iran is saying, you know, th- those people aren't us. You know, if you can imagine, every time the the U.S. were to kill someone in the Middle East, if if they blamed Britain for it. Right? And they said that this was Britain's fault. And it's like, yes, we're friendly with Britain, but we're not Britain. And much in the same way, just because Iran is friendly with these groups 
doesn't mean that they're authorizing it or that they're doing it. But that's one of the things um, that the U.S. has done to try to raise these tensions up and to, to try to, to press down on them more is by blaming them for everything uh, that a Shiite has done, even though, again, all Shiites are not Iranian. So they killed uh, our contractor, injured two soldiers. So the U.S. attacked some Hezbollah bases, and they killed 25 of their people which really upset a lot of the major Shiite parties. And again, going back to this analogy that Peter Van Buren gives us, tensions are growing too quickly. This is not just a little tit for tat. This is not just a a small game of tug of war, but this is turning into something um, where people are getting upset and things are getting ready to get very violent. So several Shiite parties, several members of these militias that are friendly with Iran, um, and, and some of them are backed by Iran, they, you know, have these protests and it kind of boils up to this uh, sort of like a small riot at the U.S. Embassy in Iraq. And this was considered to be a very big deal by the U.S. Now, the truth is there are kind of four sections of this embassy. And it's, I guess, kind of like uh, the Pentagon, you know, where it's protected by these outer layers. And the more important things are as you move in toward the toward the center or, you know, toward the part of it that's the most protected. And so... The riot kind of happened um, at the other end away from everything, and it happened at the visitor's end of the embassy. And one of the other things that they didn't mention is, as I said earlier, that the, the Iraqi government has kind of been soured on the U.S. president's uh, on the U.S. presence for a long time, and so the police. Actually, the Iraqi police actually really let the, the protesters go on through, and they just let them have their way um, with the, the visitors' end of this embassy. And so they got in a little bit, and um, they, they burned up part of it, and, and you know they rioted, and, it, and they did cause a lot of damage. But there weren't that many people at the embassy, and the people that were there, um, there were some Marines and stuff like that. So they were equipped to defend themselves, and there are helicopters there at all times that they're able to kind of escape on and all of that. So... While they did cause some property damage and while there was some rioting, there wasn't really any real danger in that situation. And we also have to consider that the Iraqi police just let them walk on through, which is also kind of a statement being made by the Iraqis as well. Now, of course, um, the U.S. Embassy is you know, technically U.S. soil, and so uh, Donald Trump and um, a lot of people, especially on your more conservative side, are saying this is an attack on U.S. soil. You know, This is an attack on us, and we absolutely have to retaliate. And this is where you get a lot of people, even from you know, a lot of the libertarian camps that tend to be anti-war and tend to be more pro-peace, that even a lot of them were jumping in and saying, hey, they attacked us on our soil. We have to fight back. We have every right to fight back. And I think that, um, you know, yes, the, the the principles of this show are peace, property rights, and free markets. You know, it's not pacifism, property rights, and free markets. It's peace, property rights, and free markets. And, and being a peaceful people sometimes means that it's okay to fight back, that it's okay to defend yourself. When someone threatens your life, it's okay to respond with force. If someone is threatening your property, it's okay to defend that. And so going with that logic, if they did def- attack us on our soil in, in that way, then sure, you know, let's defend ourselves. Let's do it. But the problem that I see here is that just as we've gone through all of these ways that the U.S. and Iran have been at each other's throats this whole time and that we've traded these blows and that there are issues with these militias that are coming from all these different directions and, and all these different sides, you just have to realize that it's not as clear 
as a lot of people are making it out to be. And I think that this is a big problem of um, you know the people cheering for war and the people cheering for us just to lay down the law on them because of what happened at this embassy is what happens when you take peaceful principles and you know reasonable self-defense principles as well tied into that and you mix them with bad information, an incomplete story, a corporate media narrative that suggests that these things are a lot worse than what they actually turned out to be. So these rioters uh, attack part of our embassy. Nobody lets them get in too far, but they you know, cause a lot of damage, and, but no one's hurt, anything like that. But now it's time for Donald Trump to respond. So January 3rd, Donald Trump killed uh, the second or third most powerful person in Iran, uh, Qasem Soleimani who is a leader of the Iranian Quds Force. Uh, basically, what Scott Horton says is their Special Operations Command. So, when he lands at an airport in Iraq, uh, and it's just come out, I'm recording this on Monday evening, January 6th, and it's just come out today that we're hearing now that he was told that he was being asked to, to come to Iraq to talk about peace with the Americans and for the Iraqis to kind of serve as a buffer with that and that they can uh, hopefully calm things down a little bit and the tensions can be brought down. And so he lands on the tarmac, potentially thinking that he's here to talk about peace, and the U.S. strikes him with a drone. And uh, it kills him and the leader of uh, what I believe was the Iraqi, uh, some Iraqi militias as well, if I remember correctly. And Iraq did not know that this was going to happen. This was an airport that was run by the Iraqis, but had been built by America. Apparently, we had cleared this with Israel's defense forces, and they knew that it was going to happen. But we hit this guy with a drone strike, and we kill him. And he's one of the most powerful people in Iran. Depending on uh, Scott Horton, compared this to like a General Petraeus or to you know a, a General Mattis. Other people, uh, like I think it was Chris McGovern, compared it more to like a Mike Pence kind of figure. I mean, very high up, no matter you know, who you want to compare it to, uh, the truth is this is a very powerful guy, and this was a very big hit for us to do. So he's been killed. Iran is furious uh, that we killed one of their top guys. Iraq is also mad about this because we killed someone at one of their airports. I mean, imagine if you know, again, just to use the, the British analogy, since that's someone that we're pretty consistently friendly with, you know, imagine if Mike Pence or General Mattis were to be landing in Britain and someone killed them uh, as they landed on that airport. I mean, obviously we would be upset, but at the same time, you know, Britain would be upset that someone would kind of, would, would make a move like this on their soil. So we can understand clearly that the Iraqis are also upset about this. And since then, the Iraqis have voted to ask our troops to leave. There was also a letter that was released today that told the Iraqis that we were leaving, uh, that we were pulling our troops out of Iraq. And then later that letter was rescinded and uh, someone said that it was a draft, but it wasn't a final notice, that it hadn't been signed and it wasn't official. But it is official that they are asking us to leave. Not sure how long it's going to take or if there are any you know, hurdles or hoops to jump through for that to happen, but that's where we are with this, and uh, we'll you know, obviously keep an eye on it as it unfolds forward. Now, 
I want to address several things in the media um, that have been repeated and uh, just aren't true. And, and you're hearing a lot from both sides, a lot of crazy things. But one of the things that they've talked about is that uh, Soleimani is responsible for killing. Um, it, the numbers has varied. Um, they've said 500 troops. They said then it was kind of up to 600 troops. And, and uh, sometimes they've said he's killed almost 1,000 American troops. And this is, it's just not true. Um, a lot of the, the times that they're claiming that he's killed these troops were often times where we were kind of fighting alongside their forces against these different militias. And it goes back to that thing where I was talking about earlier where any time a Shiite Muslim has hurt an American soldier, they've tied that back to Iran. And uh, oftentimes it's just not true. But we keep blaming Iran for these things because we want to raise tensions with them. There are also claims that Iran was involved in 9-11 somehow, that uh, some of the hijackers came from Iran or um, you know, that a lot of al-Qaeda was fleeing back to Iran or hiding in Iran after it was over with. And it's just really just not true. Um, a, a lot of those guys that were, a lot of the hijackers, they did travel through Iran, but they had also traveled through Malaysia and Spain and Germany and, and had been through like 20 of our 50 states. So... Sure, they passed through it, but it didn't really have any more ties to Iran than than what they had to you know several dozen other places. Um, there have been claims um, that every roadside bomb that our U.S. troops have encountered was made in Iraq. Oh, um, I'm sorry, was made in Iran or was coming from Iran. Uh, but again, that's one of those things that there's there's no proof for that. That's something that just keeps being said and keeps being pushed back on Iran. And uh, Scott Horton points out that a lot of those, those bombs are probably made in Iraq, that Iraq is one of those places where you can go and if you have enough money, you can buy just about any weapon you want because there are so many militias there. Uh, and, and really, there's such a market for it that that's a place that you can go if you want to get some weapons. And so it's more likely that a lot of those things came from Iraq. So why is the U.S. pressing so hard on Iran? Why are they trying to ratchet up tensions? Why has that been one of Donald Trump's goals really since he's come into office? And part of it is, is what we've talked about before, that they, are, uh, that they are not friendly toward Israel. They are not friendly toward Saudi Arabia, both of whom are huge allies of ours. And then uh, a lot of it comes down to oil, that we could make so much money off of their oil if only we had someone in charge of the government who was favorable to us. Now, what does that mean? That means the U.S. is going to take every opportunity they can to, you know, remove the Iran nuclear deal, to hit them with sanctions, to make sure that they are just economically crippled so that their people can't get access to money and food and those kind of things that they need and uh, aren't able to trade the way that they should. And hopefully the goal here is that the people... And we talked about this before in our episode about tariffs. The goal is that we can make the people so miserable that they turn on their government and they rise up against them and they overthrow them and they put someone else into power who is friendly with the U.S. And then we raise all those sanctions. We take advantage of their oil and we get good deals on all that. And we, we build the pipelines that we need to go through and we make sure that we push Russian influence out. And then everyone's happy, right? And everyone can, can live happily ever after. But the problem with that is that just like I talked about in my example on the episode about tariffs is that, you know, it's almost like you box someone into a house with an abusive husband. And you, you keep telling them um, that you'll let them have food 
uh, just as soon as they, you know, get rid of their abusive husband. But th the thing is, when you push those people into those situations and you force them to go through that together, oftentimes what happens is it causes them to band together even more and it causes them to, to feel like it's them against the outside forces that are pushing in on them. And so even if you're doing it supposedly for their own good, that's not the way that they see it. And so what Trump is hoping to do, um, and the, the, the neocons that surround him, are hoping that if we can hit them with sanction after sanction after sanction, that we can blame them for every single thing that happens. We blame them for every single attack, every single thing that happens in the Middle East. We tie it back to Iran and we blame them for it. And we use that as an excuse to hit them with more sanctions that hopefully we can make their people so miserable that they overthrow the government. Now, I made a couple posts earlier, I think it was today, maybe yesterday, I can't remember, but I said, you know, hit me up with your questions about Iran. And uh, one of those was, was Iran, were they tied to 9-11? Uh, did they fund 9-11? Not that we can tell. Just kind of like I said with the, the attacks and those kind of things, there have been several claims that our government has made, but there's never really been any evidence tied to that. And then the next obvious question is, how close are we really to a war with Iran? And honestly, I don't think it's as close as they say it is. Iran does not want to go to war with us. And we don't really want to go to war with Iran. Neither side really wants it. And so going back to this analogy uh, that Peter Van Buren used where, you know, he talked about, you know, it's kind of like playing tug of war with the dog. And you know, you're playing a game and every now and then somebody gets hurt a little bit and then you've got to back off to make sure that, that it doesn't blow up too, too much. And so Scott Horton said that piggybacking off of that analogy that for Trump to order this hit and to have Soleimani killed is actually kind of a way of, of us standing up and saying, okay, okay, this is it. We're not playing anymore. We need to back off. And that, that kind of is, is, is that reset for everybody to stop and everybody to back up and to think about what they're doing. And that by ordering this hit, that Trump may have actually stopped a war or, or you know, some further conflict with Iran. Now, that doesn't mean that the tensions are going to go down. That's not going to mean that they're any less upset. Now, Soleimani was kind of in some hot water uh, or, you know, in some controversy at the time. There were some protests going on in their areas, and, and I guess he had been kind of violent in squashing those down. And so the people were pretty upset with him already. But then for him to be killed uh, by a foreign nation in kind of a, a nation that is somewhat allied or somewhat friendly to them— um, that kind of turns him into a little bit of a martyr. And so that's going to, to pull people back to his side a little bit because, you know, much in the same way that, you know, Donald Trump is, is hated by half this country. But if, if he were to be hurt by a, a foreign country, a lot of us would band together and you would even see, you know, a lot of those far left Democrats that, that hate his guts would be upset over this because that, you know, is an attack on our nation, an attack on our people. But Scott Horton does point out that, that maybe that is the thing to cause everybody to step back a little bit and to say, whoa, 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 we don't want to accidentally stumble into a war. The question, uh, another question here is, do they actually have ties to other major enemies that could create a world war scenario or not? Um, Iran is friendly with Russia. And Russia and China, um, I think they see that the U.S. has overextended itself. And they see that the U.S. 
is not just a country anymore, but it's an empire, and that they are meddling in, in countries all over the world. They have military in country all over the world. They're fighting military conflicts all over the world, and um, common sense would tell us that that can't last forever, that we can't afford to do that forever. With the debt that we're racking up and the stress that it causes on our troops and on our military, that it's just not it's just not a strategy that's going to last forever. And so Russia and China are trying to position themselves so that when the U.S. finally starts to weaken, however that may be, whether it's an all-out collapse or whether we do just have to say to ourselves that it's time to bring the troops home and it's time to, to shrink ourselves back down some, um, whatever it is, uh, Russia and China want to be in position to kind of take over uh, a lot of that influence and a lot of those things when the U.S. is no longer able to hold that empire together. And so Iran is very friendly with Russia. Um, I don't know what their ties to China are, but I would assume that, that China would, uh, would probably take advantage of an opportunity to kind of push back against the U.S. as well, especially in a sort of proxy war where they could fight us somewhere that's not, not on their own homeland. And I, I think that's another thing is that most countries don't want to go into a war in their own land. You know, we, we saw what happened World War One and World War Two in Europe where, you know, they're just absolutely devastated and you've got whole cities burned to the ground and, you know, just so much loss of civilian life. And it, it's easier for either country to handle that when the civilian lives that are lost are, are people from another country and are people... Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, people from another race and another religion, it, it just doesn't bother the citizens at home as much when they're able to do that in another area. And I think that that's one reason why, uh, you know, some of these powers are, are going to come to the Middle East to fight a little bit. So would it cause uh, a world war scenario if we were to kind of stumble into a war with Iran? I don't think so. And the main reason why is NATO. The way that NATO is set up, is that when anybody gets into a war with, uh, it's mainly you know opposed to Russia, um, but if anybody gets into a war with them, then everybody is required, they're contractually obligated to jump into this war. So it's not just going to be the U.S. versus Iran or the U.S. versus Iran and Russia. It would be the U.S. and the rest of NATO um, and probably several other countries from the U.N. getting pulled into that. And I'm just not sure that... Russia would want to go all in on a war against that many countries, knowing that they're going to be up against all of those different people that quickly. Now, again, it is possible, but Russia's not as strong economically as they would like to be either, and they're not prepared for any kind of war that would last for a long time. So uh, when you're talking about fighting all kinds of different countries at once just over Iran— it's probably not going to happen. It probably doesn't make a lot of sense for them to do that. So I don't think that we are wading into World War III territory. And like I said as well, I don't think that they want to go to war. Now, somebody can always mess up. Somebody can always push something too far, and suddenly you are at war. But the goal here, again, is to do that little bit of push and pull, uh, a little bit of lean and tug, and you, you got to make sure that you don't look weak because you got you got to hit them back when they hit you. Um, but at the same time, you want to make sure that it's so controlled that you don't accidentally bite off more than you can chew. Uh, next question is, why did Trump ignore the deep state on Syria, but not here? So um, I think what he's asking is, th they want to get Assad out of Syria. And why would Trump be willing to pull troops out of Syria, 
and, and not to be worried so much about Assad, but that he's going to bite on the Iran thing and that they want to go to war with Iran and why is he going to do that? I think a lot of that is because even more so than Iran, people can't find Syria on a map. It, it, it's small, you know, people don't understand the significance of it. And it just doesn't seem as important to somebody like Trump, who is really only wanting to know what's in it for me and, and what's in it for his popularity and his reelection. On the other hand, with Iran, you've got a nation that is constantly fighting and opposed to Israel. Israel absolutely hates them. And Trump having that evangelical base, it's important that we show that we are supporting Israel. And it's important that we make sure that we look like we're taking up for Israel and that we're protecting them because it's important to the evangelicals in his base. And so I think it makes him look like a good guy because he's he's fighting Israel's enemies and kind of pandering into um, a little bit of that that racism that goes along with who Donald Trump is and kind of who he appeals to. Um, I think that when you look at Syria, I just don't think that Syria looks as different to us as Americans as as Iran does. And Iran, you know, it's it's where Persia used to be. You you think of shahs, you think of people wearing turbans, you think of of you know the the Muslim culture. And I just think that that's one of those things where it's a whole lot easier for them to be portrayed as the bad guy and, and for us just to kind of picture that cartoon version of fighting whatever a terrorist looks like. And I think it's easier for him to, to do those things and to sell those things to his base and to look like he's putting America first in that instead of doing it to Syrians who, who don't have kind of the stereotypical Arab look. And again, yeah, people just don't know where it is. And then finally, last question, how formidable a military foe is Iran really? Iran is much more is a much more legitimate force than anybody else that we are fighting with at the moment. They have a real state. They have a real army. They are a stable government who's had time and money to build these things. Of course, a lot of them they've, they've probably bought from us or, or bought from our allies anyway. But they do have a strong military. And the other thing um, that they have going for them is Iran is a huge, huge country. Iran is over three times the size that Iraq is. And so nobody really wants to go in and fight them there. There is, it's just a massive country. There's so much wilderness. There's so much area that you have to cover that you just cannot do it without boots on the ground. You cannot do it without drafting um, what Scott Horton said would be almost like a World War II size draft so that we could go into Iran and absolutely cover it with American soldiers and, and have them everywhere. Because we could go through and we could we could carpet bomb it. We could go to Tehran and completely flatten it with bombs. You know, you you, you use the B-52s and you, you carpet bomb it or, you know, you, you drop a nuke on Tehran or whatever. But... That doesn't change the government. You can kill a lot of people. You can take out a lot of their military. Ultimately, they, they would cost us a lot of lives and a lot of money fighting us, but ultimately we're going to win, and they know we're going to win. But it doesn't change who their government is. And what Scott Horton says is what would have to happen in order for us to overthrow their government and install our own, means that we would absolutely have to take over their country. That you would have to have an American soldier holding an M4 standing on every single street corner that's there. 
you know, wandering out through the wilderness, checking every cave, checking every possible place to hide to make sure that they're all out of there so that we can install the people that we want to install. And it's just too hard. Um, I, I don't know what a draft would look like right now in 2020. I, I don't know, I, you know, I wasn't alive when we did this for World War II, but I'm, I'm looking at the at the people that they would have to draft to do this, and uh, you look at, one, just how polarized we are, and, and I can't imagine half the people in the country anymore wanting to go fight for somebody of the opposite political party, and then at the same time, could today's youth even handle being drafted? You know, does the, the military have the, the gluten-free meals, and you know, do they have the helmets that are going to fit over your man bun? I don't know, and and I don't know that we as a people are up for that, even if it came down to it. But um, that's something that the U.S. absolutely doesn't want to do. And so the goal is because we don't want to have to, you know, have a draft and and cover their country with our troops to to form a full-scale takeover, we're hoping that if we blame them for everything that goes wrong and we hit them with sanctions every time, that their people will overthrow their government and that they will do it for us and we won't have to worry about that. So uh, I think that's about all I've got, but I just wanted to do my best to kind of go through a brief history of Iraq and Iran and kind of how we got to where we were and just to kind of hopefully clear up a lot of the media narrative and, and hopefully to answer a lot of the questions and to, to correct a lot of the lies that are out there floating around and just to, to say again that you know, they're saying that, that our, our base was, uh, that our embassy was attacked and that we have to retaliate because of that. And I think of the same way that when we talked in 2003 that Iraq had these weapons of mass destruction, that we have to go after them and we have to get them out of there. And it turned out to be an absolute lie, but we ended up there anyway. And, and we're still stuck fighting in that area almost 20 years later. And in the same way with Afghanistan, that I, we haven't even got to talk about it on the show yet, um, about these Afghanistan papers that the Washington Post got a hold of that, that said that basically everything that we've been told about Afghanistan has been a lie. And when they give us updates on how things are going in Afghanistan, that those things have been lies and that they've all just been excuses to keep us at war because that's what makes the weapons manufacturers rich. That's what makes the, the war lobbyists rich. That's what keeps the war machine turning and it's almost always started by lies and propaganda. And in the same way, when we're talking about Iran, yeah, they're not the greatest nation. They're not friendly people. It's not a place that you would probably want to live. And I'm not saying that it is. But at the same time, as, as turning them into some kind of monster under our bed that we have to worry about at all times and that we have to escalate things with and that we have to potentially go to war with, that's a lie as well. And if we're going to be sending troops, and if you're going to be sending people's sons and daughters and fathers and mothers off to die in the wilderness in Iran, then I just like to think that we should be pretty damn sure that we're sending them there for a good reason. I've seen so many posts and so many pictures this week of troops leaving, you know, Fort Bragg and, and troops boarding the plane so that they can go to Iraq and, and provide cover and to defend our interests. And people just talk about how noble it is. And I just think we need to take a minute to talk about how stupid it might be. That when one of those guys gets killed by a roadside bomb or by a rocket from some militia member, 
that it's an absolute travesty to think that they're dying because of lies so that some president can look tough, so that some senator can collect another check from Raytheon. It just seems ridiculous to me. And so I just want to use this show as a platform to say, let's push back against the propaganda. Let's ask the hard questions. And if someone really is trying to invade, someone really is trying to hurt us, then let's have a real conversation about using the military. But let's stop sending them to die. Stop sending them to miss their children growing up. To spend months and months and sometimes years away from home not defending our freedoms, but defending the lies of an empire. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. As always, reach out to me on twitter.com. Username is Garrett again. You can do facebook.com slash Garrett again, or you can email me at Garrett again at pm.me. As always, Garrett just has one R. Thank you so much for listening. Share the show with everybody you know. And let's just talk to as many people as possible to hopefully help them understand that the story we're hearing is not always the full story. I'll try to post as many links as I can from this show in the show notes and give you plenty of reading to do if you want to look into those things a little bit more. Thank you so much. And uh, until the next episode, stay kind, stay vigilant, stay free. Get out of here.